Welcome to episode number 12 of the Kevin Rook Show. Today I had a chance to speak with Chris Tremount. He's the CEO of Scarce City. Scarce City is a Bitcoin marketplace for buying and selling physical and digital art and collectibles. It leverages the Lightning Network, and we talked a lot about how Scarce City uses Lightning specifically, um, the differences culturally and from a technical perspective of how Scarce City works versus something like OpenSea or other platforms for selling NFTs and on other different uh, blockchains. And we talked a bunch about memes and rare pepes and, and counterparty and how the digital collectible space has evolved on Bitcoin versus on Ethereum or other chains. It was a really interesting conversation. Definitely give this one a thorough listen. Um, and throughout the episode, as you have questions, send them over the Lightning Network. Open up a Lightning podcasting app, open up Fountain, send me a message. If you want to support the show, you can send some sats. Can't wait to read them all. And I will be answering any of your questions at the end of the show in the Lightning round. Chris, thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Kevin, doing great, man. It's great to be here. Awesome. Um, let's let's dive into what you're building at Scarcity. Um, I think this is a really cool project. I think there's a lot of people that still don't understand it or some people who haven't even heard of it. Um, so why don't you start off by telling people about first what Scarce City is and second, why you built it and what, what kind of problem you want to solve? Sure, yeah. So Scarce City is a marketplace for Bitcoin goods and collectibles. Everything we do is based on Bitcoin. Uh, it's not only the goods that we sell uh, having a Bitcoin theme, but we only transact in Bitcoin and we use Bitcoin technology to enable a lot of our sales. So for example, we use the Lightning Network uh, to uh, collateralize auction bids. Uh, the way we came up with the idea is, um, look, I, you know, I, I got into Bitcoin 2017-ish, um, around 2018, 19, uh, the creative space in crypto as a whole, uh, was I was really drawn to and I, I noticed a lot of uh, my favorite Bitcoin artists, uh, they were creating physical works and having a hard time selling them. Some of them, some, some of them did really well, but they had you know, really large audiences. Uh, and at the same time, you started to see the marketplaces for the NFTs pop up. Uh, and a lot of these Bitcoin artists, they, they felt forced to go to the Ethereum marketplaces, which, you know, that's totally like their their thing and I, I respect any artist who's making money and, and able to, to support themselves by uh, to make more art but it just didn't feel authentic uh, so I started thinking about what we could do for Bitcoin and um, you know I was fortunate to to find a partner a technical partner who could uh, help me do the real magic uh, behind the keyboard and uh, we were also very fortunate to uh, find our way into the Bitcoin artist community. Uh, a, a large part of that was uh, Chief Monkey. He was kind of our chief uh, evangelist and introduced us to a lot of the Bitcoin artists and gave us some of our best ideas, including using Lightning for uh, auction collateral. And from there, you know, once we um, once we did our first auction um, in what God, December of two years ago, so what, 2020, uh, we've just kind of been off to the races, uh, doing more auctions, supporting more Bitcoin art. We've got into the, the digital asset space, space that's on Bitcoin, uh, originally with like the OG Rare Pepe uh, counterparty tokens, but uh, more recently with some of the, the newer tokens that are also minted on counterparty and also dabbling with some of the other uh, Bitcoin native protocols for the digital assets. Uh, so I think that's us in a nutshell where we're coming from and, and where we are right now. Yeah, that's awesome. And how, can you walk me through how someone uses Scarcity today? Like the different the different mechanisms you have for auctions and for selling selling goods, whether they're physical or digital, how that how that works on a granular level? Yeah, so we have two different types of sales we do. One is uh, it's kind of our bread and butter, the auctions. Uh, we also do fixed price sales. So the fixed price sales, they work uh, you know, kind of as you would expect. Basically, you see something for sale for a listed price, of course, in Bitcoin, and you pay that Bitcoin and, and you get the item. You know, If it's a physical good, you input your shipping address. If it's a digital good, you input your digital address. 
for the auctions, the way it works is you input how much you want to bid in SATs. And you, all we need from you is an email address uh, and a bidder name. And from there, you're directed to pay uh, an invoice uh, over Bitcoin main chain or Lightning that represents a small percentage of your actual bid. Usually it's about 1% of your actual bid. And it's that collateral uh, that keeps you accountable for paying your bid should you win the auction. Uh, and then once the auction's over, the item is fully paid for, everybody gets their collateral back. Now, of course, the exception is if the high bidder doesn't pay their high bid, they lose their collateral and the second place bidder has their chance to pay their bid. Mm, interesting. When did you decide to add Lightning in? What was the reasoning behind that, I guess? Yeah, so it actually goes back to when we were really just fiddling around with, um, you know, what we could do on Bitcoin. And we started with, like, this is when COVID first broke out and we started with face masks because everybody needed a face mask. This was like, this was actually, this was like so early in COVID, it was before like Bitcoin was anti-face masks. Um, <laughs> Uh, and we, we did something kind of just as an experiment. We put, uh, we generated uh, Bitcoin addresses for each face mask, or actually the customer generated an address. And the public address would actually be physically printed on the face mask and um, the customer would hold a private key. So you could technically prove the authenticity of your face mask and uh, in, in that same respect, verify the supply. Uh, of the face masks. Uh, and from that, uh, you know, going into it, actually, we weren't sure if we were going to support Lightning. Um, you know, Lightning, I had never used it up until that point. Of course, I was familiar with it. I had, you know, heard of a bunch of people talk about them on podcasts and seen it all over Twitter. Uh, but I hadn't, I hadn't had a real reason to use it. So going into that sale, we're like, do we support Lightning? It's a little bit more work. We kind of just want to get something out here. We decided to go ahead and, and support Lightning because it was right around the time of the halving, and fees spiked up. And we're like, oh gosh, you know, it's actually getting expensive to transact on chain. We got to do something on Lightning, and we were really surprised to see that about a third. And we only we only sold about like twenty of these things, not even, but like you know, a third. Uh, so five to ten uh, of the transactions were over Lightning, uh, and that you know that was surprising. Uh, and that was kind of the impetus for us to dig into how Lightning works. And I, I got set up on my first Lightning wallet. And really, it was that first Lightning transaction. You just, you know, experiencing Bitcoin uh, settle immediately uh, and for and so cheaply, especially when you're used to a high uh, fee environment. It was just a magical experience. And it, uh, you know, immediately... For me, I was like, okay, this is definitely the future uh, of, of transacting on Bitcoin and, and maybe beyond that. Uh, so we started really digging, digging in then and educating ourselves uh, into the capabilities of Lightning. And we realized it could be used for much more than um, just payment, just standard payments. Uh, and that kind of got the wheels going. We started educating our community and they started generating ideas of how we could use it. And so today is lightning the only way you can you can put up collateral for a piece or no, is no, you can, no you can put up collateral uh, on chain of course now these days with fees being so low uh, you know putting up collateral on chain is, it's not that big of a deal uh, but it's still it's not quite the same magical experience of uh, just seeing your payment instantly settle uh, but we support everything have you noticed any trends of you said initially there were about a third of people initially buying uh, things over Lightning. Um, have you noticed trends of like how dominant Lightning is compared to on-chain volume over time? It's a good question. We've, you know, we've adjusted our features over time. So it's, you know, it's not really um, a fair AB uh, comparison. Uh, for example, you can, you can deposit, make a one-time deposit to participate in multiple of our auctions. And that's something that a lot of our users opt for just because it's easier. But as far as like one-off bid deposits, I would guess it's about 50-50 between on-chain and Lightning, probably more Lightning, actually. Uh, and, you know, the general trend is it's just become much easier to onboard onto Lightning. Uh, the percentage of successful uh, transactions has gone up a whole lot. 
uh, the amount people are transacting over Lightning has gone up a whole lot. Like when we first started, you know, I feel like um, no one was no one was transacting any more than like uh, you know, a quarter million sats, and that number has just gone up consistently. Uh, we started seeing half a million. Um, sat transactions, million sat transactions. Recently, you know, we're seeing like six million sat transactions. Uh, so people are becoming much more comfortable and clearly like holding uh, serious amounts of Bitcoin on their Lightning wallets, but they're also able to transact them with us uh, seamlessly. Yeah, I've definitely noticed, um, like, well, my first time experiencing Lightning, I guess, was May of this past year. I, I really got into it then. Um, and immediately noticed how how smooth the process was. Like, yes, back then there were some hiccups and me trying to understand how it all worked. You know, I'd have a failed payment every now and then, but when it worked, you're just like, whoa, right? That is a magical experience, and it is way better than sitting around for 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes waiting for a confirmation to go through. And then, you know, we have, we have all this... Uh, we have lightning addresses, we have QR codes, uh, scanning. Lightning is just so, it's such a mobile first experience. Yeah. Where I think on-chain Bitcoin, you typically you're using, you know, you may use a hardware wallet, you may use an exchange, you may, you're probably not doing that as much on mobile. So it does feel like it's more more fluid, it's easier to use. It's, uh, yeah, I agree. It's a, yeah, and, you know, it's, um, I think we're just starting to see what the capabilities of, of Lightning will become. Uh, and we use it for more than just, you know, basic payments. We actually use it to uh, refund our auction bidders uh, through email. We can just send them an LNURL um, withdrawal code, a QR code that they can just scan with their Lightning wallet. That's not something you can do on chain that I'm actually familiar with uh, because yeah. it's, it's a purely kind of push static payment. Uh, you know, we don't, need, we don't need to receive an invoice or we don't need to receive an address from the, the customer to, to pay them, we just send them a loaded QR code and they just scan it and they're good to go. Oh, very cool. So so if there's a hundred bidders on an item, one guy wins it, the other 99 are automatically gonna get an email with an invoice and they can just pull their funds instantly. Exactly, or if they have an account with us, they can log in and their QR code's right there. Whatever collateral they've built up, they can withdraw it immediately. Interesting. See, I think I think there's a still a misconception in crypto that Bitcoin or Lightning can't do stuff. Like it's just it's just a token, it's just a you know digital gold or whatever. Um, what was your moment of realization where you where you like you decided to build on Bitcoin? You decided to build on Lightning. Um, how did you come to realize that it could do some of these things and that it could you can kind of use it in interesting ways um, beyond its you know its ability to be a store of value? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Um, look, I have to give a lot of credit to Ryan Gentry over at Lightning Labs. And uh, before he was he joined Lightning Labs, I came across a blog post of his, and I can't remember the name of it. I think he actually, he was working for Multichain at the time, and he put out a blog post with them. And he talked about all of like the potential use cases of Lightning beyond payments. Uh, and, he, and he alluded to specifically using uh, your Lightning node as um, decentralized identification. Uh, and that kind of opened my eyes to, okay, this is bigger than payments. Now, you know, I would have hoped that infrastructure would have developed faster by now. Uh, but I think that's just the nature of, of building Bitcoin. Like it's, it's slower development, but it's much more, a much more secure foundation. And that's ultimately why we're in Bitcoin in the first place is because we want to build on, you know, secure, trustless infrastructure. Um, so that's the trade-off we have to deal with. You know, it's, um, it's um, sometimes it, it can feel a little slow compared to what's going on elsewhere, but, you know, at the same time, what's going on elsewhere, like a lot of that st stuff is breaking all the time. Uh, and we just, we can't have that on Bitcoin. So it's, 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 kind of low time preference and uh, in the app builder perspective. Right. Are there any, so you talked about identity and possibly having that on, on lightning. Um, how might that come to be? Like, what, what would that look like? Is that something you guys are actively thinking about integrating? I'd love to hear more about how that works. 
I'm honestly not an expert on it, uh, and I wish I could spend more time keeping up with it. But it just, you know, I'm wrapped up in, in the daily grind here. Uh, but from my understanding, you know, it, it, actually, I think it's relatively simple if you're running your own node. If you're running your own node, your node pub key can basically act as your identity. And um, I think it's, uh, gosh, the, the, the feature name is slipping my mind right now, but you can technically send funds directly to someone's pub key. Uh, and, you know, you can send messages over Lightning Network to someone's public pub key. So you start to see uh, some of the capabilities that you would generally get with a digital identification, but in this case, it's pseudonymous, right? Your real identity is not tied to it. Um, so I think there's just, I think there's so much to be explored there and we're just scratching the surface so far. Now we are 100% like we want to be early adopters of this stuff, but it's not gonna be us to build it. Like we are the app developers. It's kind of a different layer of the stack. Uh, infrastructure, you know, the protocol uh, builders, they're the ones that really have to make it production ready, but as soon as they do, we're all over it. Yeah. So how far do you think you guys can, can push in that direction of being decentralized or being kind of, uh, you know, putting identity uh, on Lightning? Like, I know right now you have, you have payments and you have some, some logic that is enabled by Lightning, but then there's other, other functions of the app and the, the maybe front end and the fact that you guys are a company that are, that are traditional and more, like, more centralized in that respect. Um, how far do you think you take it in that direction of like decentralizing things? How much logic can you put on Lightning? Can you put on Bitcoin? Yeah. It's a great question and, you know, it's to be determined. Um, look, we are a centralized company. We're a corporation. We're, you know, we're a centralized marketplace. Uh, so there is trust associated with using us. And as long as we have that structure, there always will be. Uh, so, you know, us becoming a fully decentralized organization, I don't know if it'll ever happen. If it, if it does, it'll be a long way off. But we can use uh, greater capabilities of Lightning and other layers of the Bitcoin stack to uh, automate a lot of more our processes so that there is less trust involved in, an, in uh, each individual process. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that once kind of the smart contract uh, feature sets get built out, which, you know, I think a lot of that will be built out on Lightning. Um, but we're still not, you know, I, I know some some teams kind of, they have their smart contract um, solutions, but we haven't seen anything that's that we've seen that's like fully baked enough for us to integrate. I know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, when you think about Scarce City's business has two kind of differing, like you have different perspectives, right? You have a, a, a part of the business where you're actually shipping things in more of like an eBay style exchange. And then you have a part where you're, you're doing digital goods in more of like an OpenSea style exchange. Um, what's the rationale be be behind having both those? And maybe we can dive into like, which you think is gonna be bigger over time, which is gonna be more, um, wh which the direction you guys are heading in. Yeah, so, uh, you know, physical art, it's the heart and soul of, of Scarcity. Uh, it's, you know, what our core creator group, it's it's what they, they create. Um, we will never leave physical art as long as there are people making it and there's as long as people uh, want it. And I think that that'll drive our trends generally. It's like, what does what the market want? What do, what do collectors want? Uh, however, I'm a huge belie believer in the digital asset space, um, you know, NFT is, is the common term. I don't like that term. Um, I, I think it's fair on the other chains, but if it's on Bitcoin, I like the term rares. I think it's just important for us to differentiate ourselves from that ecosystem because it is different. Uh, the technology is different. You know, there's the security model is different. Uh, any tokens that we deal with, they are secured by the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, and culturally, they're entirely different. You know, there's a, there's a different history uh, with the Bitcoin tokens. These things have been created since 2014. Uh, and it's, um, it's kind of like the counterculture of the digital asset space, uh, which is what I love about it. 
And it's, uh, you know, it, it's been a, it's been a really interesting thing to watch. Of course, it was on our radar from the beginning getting into this space. When I got into Bitcoin 2017, I saw some of the rare Pepe's, but didn't really understand it. Uh, you know, would just see the, the Pepe's pop up on Twitter here and there. Uh, and then as like the NFT scene blossomed on Ethereum, uh, it kind of seemed like, you know, the rare Pepe's were dead. The counterparty protocol was dead. Like I didn't see the activity. Of course, I wasn't looking for it. Now, lo and behold, the entire time there was like a core group of, of diehard uh, community members that were keeping this thing going. The rare Pepe's kept being traded through all, like all the, the bear markets. And now it's had this like amazing resurgence as people have come to recognize that this is like, these are like the real OG relics of, you know, the digital asset space. And um, even more so now as Ethereum fees have gone through the roof and kind of become, you know, it's kind of become unusable except for like really high value items. We're now seeing this resurgence of creators of digital creators actually, you know, creating tokens on counterparty again. And the crazy thing is there's actually, you know, there's actually demand for them. Uh, there's very strong, vibrant communities uh, that are popping up uh, and growing based on Bitcoin uh, tokens, the Bitcoin rares. Uh, so it's been a, just a beautiful thing to watch. It's blown away all my expectations. I was like, the first podcast I did actually was about a year ago. And I think I said, I should dig up the quote. I think I said like, rare puppies are dead. The counterparty is dead. Like it, I was, I was totally wrong. Uh, and I'm glad to be wrong. Um, but beyond that in the future, I think you're also going to see with the Bitcoin infrastructure development, other, uh, protocols for issuing, uh, Bitcoin based tokens. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of really interesting ideas, a lot of smart teams working on this. Of course, it's not real yet. So, um, you know, there's, it's definitely, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, but in general, I am extremely excited about what we're going to see, uh, on Bitcoin for digital assets. Uh, I think there's a big future there. Um, but at the same time, we will always support the physical goods. Like, you know, we love the physical goods. Our collectors love the physical goods. It's not either or, it's both. Right. I want to dive into all this, but I want to start with the, can I get you to expand on some of those um, technological differences between rares and NFTs and some of the cultural differences, what you see them as? Yeah. So, you know, the technical stuff, I'm not a super technical guy, so I'm not the best person to talk about it, but I can explain how counterparty works on a high level. Uh, when you are issuing a token on counterparty or transacting a token, uh, it, you're actually, you're actually uh, executing a Bitcoin transaction and the op return field of the Bitcoin transaction, with, which if you're familiar, it's kind of like the memo field. Uh, is actually used in a standardized way to um, input uh, metadata associated with that token and the action of that token. In the counterparty servers, they query the Bitcoin blockchain and look for metadata that fits that format, and they bring it into their servers. Uh, you know, hopefully, I'm getting that right. That's my understanding. So basically, um, all the rares are, are issued on counterparty. Is that correct? All the, yeah. All the rare Pepe's certainly, um, the like 99% of tokens on Bitcoin are issued on counterparty. Now there is liquid, which is technically a side chain, um, not really on the Bitcoin network, but certainly, uh, you know, some overlap with Bitcoin there. Um, but that's, you know, that's a much smaller ecosystem than what's on counterparty right now. Okay. And then from a cultural perspective, how do these two communities differ with the NFTs and then the Bitcoin side? Yeah. I mean, I think you trace it back to how these things started. Um, 2014 was the first token on Bitcoin. It was actually called the test token. Uh, and from there, you know, very slowly, there was a lot of experimentation. Uh, there was, there were projects like spells of Genesis, the rare Pepe project started in 2016. And the way that started was 
some guy who goes by the name of Mike that no one, you know, no one knows, or maybe someone knows, but generally people don't know who uh, he or she is besides uh, going by the name Mike just dropped a, uh, a counterparty token for um, what's known now as the, the Nakamoto card. Uh, so you've probably seen this flying around Twitter. It's basically like the Dorian Nakamoto portrait, but as a rare Pepe. Uh, and, you know, I don't think there, I wasn't around for this, but from what I understand, there wasn't much explanation around it. I think maybe he started a, a Telegram group and uh, there was no utility associated with this token. It was just it was just creating this token and putting it out there uh, and making it for sale for super cheap. Uh, so the point yeah, here was, was just one. So it was uh, there was an issuance of I believe 300 for that one. So 300 editions of this token. Okay. Um, but the point here is it wasn't about money. It wasn't about utility like spells of Genesis came before, but that was actually used as a card game. Uh, and, and that's part of the, the reason why a lot of the early rare pepes, they take the aesthetic of playing cards, but there's no there's no game. And maybe one day there will be. I think, you know, people have, have thought about creating a game out of it. But the point is, it's because it has no utility, it's technically art. Uh, but also, like, it wasn't about money. These things weren't worth anything. It was people were just doing this for the LOLs, you know. Uh, and that's something that can't be repeated. Right, like now, if you're doing anything in the digital asset space, it's about the money. Uh, so it's yeah. kind of this like immaculate inception moment, which reminds me a lot of Bitcoin, right? Like pseudonymous creator uh, Satoshi Nakamoto just dropping uh, a white paper out there and uh, bootstrapping this network. Uh, you know, the foundation of the rare Pepe's, like the story there, is is really authentic to Bitcoin in a way that you're just not going to see anywhere else. And I think, um, you know, that's the start of the culture and it's just kind of built up in that direction ever since. And especially going through what I described of like, you know, the counterparty bear market, the rare Pepe bear market, like counterparty is like one of the most hated technologies I have ever experienced. Like not only do like people on Ethereum hate it, like a Bitcoiners, a lot of Bitcoiners have hated a counterparty uh, all, you know, since its inception for a variety of different reasons, um, you know, but what's amazing is it's survived all that and now it's stronger than ever. Uh, so it's kind of like, it has this like dejected type of culture, but like ultimately triumphant, at least so far. Uh, so it kind of has this kind of hero's journey story to it as well, which just makes it really interesting. But in general, it's like, you know, um, you know, the pop stars, like they're going to be the celebrities, they're going to be issuing their tokens on, um, on Ethereum or whatever other, you know, latest and greatest um, altcoin that's out there. But it's kind of the counterculture that lives on counterparty. And uh, that that's what makes it beautiful. Now, there are some kind of big names that are minting on, on counterparty now. Ghostface Killer just did his uh, first, first drop on uh, the fake rare project, which is a reboot of the rare Pepe's. But, you know, Ghostface Killer, he's not like, he's not a pop star, right? He's, he's kind of counterculture. Uh, so we're seeing that, seeing things move in that direction, which just makes it, you know, makes it a lot of fun, you know. And again, I think it's it's authentic to Bitcoin. I see Bitcoin as, as counterculture. Um, I see Bitcoin as, you know, Bitcoin is like a fight for financial freedom. The rare Pepe's were a fight for uh, freedom of expression. Uh, and um, they just have these amazing parallels and it's, uh, you know, very authentic to, to what we've seen in Bitcoin so far. Yeah. Now, as new collections are created on Counterparty, for example, the fake rares, does that start to eat into Bitcoin's kind of, um, or the, the organic kind of like authentic adoption of um, the rare Pepe's? Where, where you talked about how people weren't doing it for money is is the fact that now people realize some of this stuff does have value. Does that kind of eat into it at all? Or, or do you still think that the community today and moving forward is going to be different from the community you might see on Ethereum where people are, are definitely, you know, minting the stuff for, for financial gain? Uh, it, it's a little bit of both. I mean, certainly now any token project that anyone's doing, like there's a, a monetary association with it. And that's, you know, not always a bad thing. It's, you know, it's great for artists to actually, 
make some money for a change. Uh, so you, you can't recreate that, that immaculate inception that the rare Pepe's have, but it, a lot of the culture does carry over. Um, does it take away from it? No, I don't, I don't think so at all. I think it actually amplifies it. Uh, and I think this is, you know, just meme culture and meme economics in general. It's kind of, it's kind of funny to see anybody like people get upset about copyright copywriting or, you know, taking someone's work on, in the digital space. But as, as long as you can point to what the original work is, like any replicate of it, uh, any, you know, uh, variant of it, it just amplifies the original meme. I think that's the difference, you know, one of the biggest differences of the digital world versus the physical world. Like, if you're creating something in the digital world, you want people to copy it because you can always prove, you know, there are challenges around this, but as long as you can prove that yours is the original, any variant, any copy of it is just going to strengthen your original meme, which, you know, whether it's uh, monetary value or just awareness, attention, uh, it, it just it creates more of it. Okay, so I, I, I want to give the audience kind of perspective on how big this kind of rare Pepe collection is or how important it is. Um, we talked a bit before the show about how there's there's multiple marketplaces and it's, it's a little bit tricky to find data on this stuff. Um, I guess, are there any, um, you know, can you, can you cite any kind of like uh, last sales or large sales or notable, like how much are these rare Pepe's going for? I know they're different in the number of issuances on each token, but um, like, how do we grasp, like how, how big this is? Can you, can you help us grasp that? Yeah, so the actual number, I'm not sure if anybody has an accurate calculation of it because uh, the information is, is disparate all over the place and no one so far as, that I've seen has been able to bring it all together. Uh, what I can tell you is that there are 1,774 rare Pepe cards. Each of them has a, uh, an issuance, a supply that was set by the creator. And that supply can vary from one to... I don't, I don't know if there was a cap. I mean, I, I've seen some that I think are like a billion. Um, so of course, you know, the, the perceived value of the card is going to depend somewhat on the supply of that card. Uh, to give you a sense of what these things trade for, uh, Christie's did an auction for one of the very few um, rare pepes that has an issuance of one uh, i believe this was in october and i think it went for three million or so uh so certainly attracts large numbers uh and you know the hundred it's kind of um, what you see a lot of is like the hundred supply rare pepes those are the ones that uh that are, are most frequently traded i think because there's a lot of them first of all not a lot of them but like it's a pretty common uh issuance count uh, and it's, it's seen as like rare enough to be valuable. Now there are others that have higher issuance like this. Again, this is art. So you can't, there's no formula for determining like what these things are valued. It's all just what people perceive the value is. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, there are objective factors like how early the card was created, the supply, but then there's less tangible factors of just like how cool or, you know, as we say, how dank the card is. Uh, and that's, that's in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, so you can see, I mean, you can see these things trade for any number you can imagine. I would say a typical hundred supply rare Pepe these days trades for the equivalent of you know, maybe 2000 uh, USD. Um, it was just kind of crazy. Like it's, you know, these things were basically thrown around for free. Um, as of like maybe before a year ago, yeah. Uh, but as as it's kind of become more obvious to more people that digital tokens, NFTs, call them what you may, they're here to stay. And rare Pepe's are one of the like original projects, and that can never be changed. Right. Now, if someone's going to go out and buy a rare Pepe, and they use scarcity, can you walk through like? how the business model works. Are you guys taking a cut on that? I know you're, you're one of many marketplaces, right? For, for purchasing this. Sure. Yeah. So there are a variety of different places to buy rare pet bays. It's, 
when I first was introduced to them, it was really hard, really hard to obtain a rare Pepe. I mean, you could buy them over the counter, find someone on, on Telegram and like just trust them, you know, basically that when you send them the money, they're going to send you the Pepe. Uh, there is a lot of trust in, in the rare Pepe community. People have reputations here uh, and they value their reputations. Um, but if you were to buy one today, let's start with scarcity. And that, actually, let's start with the seller because we use our kind of unique innovation of Bitcoin as collateral to make the selling experience easier uh, for, for rare Pepe's. So instead of having to escrow your rare Pepe card in a random address and, and you know, uh, pay the fees associated with that and take on the risk of maybe something happening to that escrow wallet being compromised, we don't take custody of the asset. Uh, we, uh, we require a listing deposit that works similar to how our auction bid deposits function. So if you're, if you're listing a card for a price of, let's just use easy numbers, $100, maybe we'll require $5 of collateral that's payable Bitcoin on chain, Bitcoin Lightning. And that's what keeps you accountable for actually delivering the card should it sell. And as soon as you cancel that listing for whatever reason, you get that collateral back. Uh, so it creates an easy option to where like, you don't have to go through the risks of, of losing your card uh, or the cost of losing your card. All you have to do, if you have Lightning especially, just put down a little bit of uh, sats and Lightning and you're kept accountable for actual delivery. Now, from the buyer end, uh, it's real simple. You just go to Scarcity. Uh, we try to make it as easy as possible to search for different rare Pepe's and sort through them. You find one you like, you see a price in Bitcoin for that rare Pepe. Uh, all we require from you is an email address and your counterparty address. So this is actually the trickiest part uh, of, the, of the process uh, at this point is your counterparty address. So you need a wallet. Uh, actually, I should take that back. You don't need a specific wallet for a counter, for holding a counterparty asset. Counterparty assets can be held on any Bitcoin address uh, because it functions on Bitcoin. But there are specific wallets that make it easy uh, to manage your rare Pepe assets on specific Bitcoin addresses. So generally, you want to go to like freewallet.io is is uh, the best all-purpose. Um, wallet for managing counterparty assets, create a wallet there. And then you would use it very similar to how you use any Bitcoin wallet. You have an address. Uh, and if you're buying a Pepe from Scarcity, you input that address with your order. You're directed to pay the invoice. You're just paying, again, you're paying Bitcoin on chain or over lightning. And the seller has 24 hours to deliver that rare Pepe to you. As long as they do, uh, they get their collateral back for that listing deposit. If they don't, they lose their, their listing deposit and the buyer gets refunded. And we even actually uh, we even actually give some of the listing deposit to the buyer should uh, that transaction fail. But what, what we've learned through all of this, whether it's our auctions or our fixed marketplace listings, is that it takes very little collateral to keep marketplace participants accountable. Um, you know, we've, we've settled on 1%. Uh, collateral for auction bid deposits, and it's about 5% for marketplace listings. And um, that's all it takes. You know, people, people who interact with us, they value their Bitcoin. Uh, and even if it's a small amount, like they don't, people, there's like, you know, this risk aversion bias that's amplified in Bitcoin. People don't want to lose their sats. So that means we don't need many sats from them to keep them accountable. Yeah, like people have an aversion to losing more than they care about winning something, right? They just, they at all costs don't want to lose whatever they put up. Yeah, it's basic human psychology, right? But I think um, I think uh, Bitcoin kind of puts it in a hyperdrive. Like no one wants to see their Bitcoin balance go down. Like, that's you know, right. a terrible feeling, even if it's just a little bit. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's a very strong uh, incentive for account accountability. And then are you guys taking a fee on, I guess, all successful trades? Um, you guys earn a fee on that? Yeah, yeah, that's how our business works, whether it's auctions or uh, you know marketplace sales, we, we take a small fee. How does that fee compare to something like, I think OpenSea is in the realm of two, two and a half percent, I think. Um, what's that like from you guys? For, for digital goods, it's somewhere in that range, maybe a little bit more because frankly, 
we have more of a, a manual process. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's more risk associated with that and more work associated with that. With physical goods, it's a little bit more because we are, you know, we are taking on the risk of items moving from point A to point B in meat space. Um, and again, more work, more risk. Uh, however, compared to the traditional art world, it's a tiny fraction of, uh, you know, what the galleries charge or the auction houses charge. What do they typically charge? I'm curious, like the like Christie's auction house. It's a great question. I don't know specifically. Uh, there's, a, I just watched this documentary. Oh man, I can't think of the name of it, but it's about the traditional art world. And uh, wow, that talk about a broken system. Um, it's it's straight up extortion for artists uh, and collectors. Frankly, the the basic um, the basic supply chain is an artist partners with the gallery and, you know, the gallery, they have their premium uh, location, their premium foot traffic and their premium brand and the relationships with the collectors. So I think they charge like a 50% margin. Uh, and even the galleries, like if I were to just show up in a, a New York City gallery and say, I want to buy this whatever painting, and it doesn't matter, you know, say I had the money, it doesn't matter. Like, you can't just do that. They actually, uh, they actually want to vet their collectors, and what they're looking for. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but they're they're looking to make sure I'm not just going to flip the artwork and put it immediately up for auction, uh, because they have the relationship with the artist to maintain. But the thing is, is like when it goes to auction, it goes to auction traditionally in the secondary market. Uh, so after it goes to the salary seller then it goes to the collector and then it goes up to auction. And that's where you see like the headline numbers. The artist doesn't see any of that, right? They are out of, uh, you know, the transaction at that point. Um, so it's, it's a very strange model. Like it's something that could only have been created through kind of, you know, antiquated systems. Uh, and all along the way, you have these different monopolies that uh, just create bad deals for artists and collectors. Uh, so the digital world, uh, you know, on Bitcoin specifically, uh, creates new options where artists can take their work to auction as the primary sale, and they get, you know, the great majority of those proceeds. And then even for secondary sales, uh, you know, this comes down to the platform, but for any secondary sales of physical artworks, we give 10% royalty to the artists so they can participate on the upside should their, should their artwork um, increase in value over time. Right. And it, it almost seems like the uh, putting art on a digital platform and allowing people to buy and sell has almost created a new breed of art collectors and, and also of art traders. Right. Like there's definitely I know definitely happening on on like OpenSea and some of the other crypto platforms um, where people are just flipping, you know, back and forth. And there's a lot of there's a lot more liquidity. It's a lot easier to buy. It's a lot easier to sell. Um, are you are you guys seeing some like do you have any insights on, on how people are using scarcity? Are they primarily using it to collect? Are they trading? Are they trying to flip things? Um, has that changed over time? It varies a lot depend, depending on which part of our business. So the traditional or not traditional, the physical Bitcoin artwork, it's really people are buying this thing first and foremost because they love it uh, and they want to hold on to it. We actually do receive a lot of secondary market offers that are higher than actual auction price. And, you know, 90% of those have been declined by the original owner even though it, it could be a, a quick flip for them. Uh, and it's because like, they really love this thing, or maybe, you know, maybe it is an investment to them. Of course, I think art will always have that aspect, but it's a long-term investment. They're not interested in flipping it. There's also, um, you know, especially in the, the physical art world, like in the, in the Bitcoin space uh, in particular, there's a relationship with the artist. It's really about the artist. You know, um, the, the aesthetics of the artwork is, is just a small component. When people are buying an artwork, they're buying it because they, they're, they're buying a, a piece of the story of that, that artist. A lot of these artists, you know, they've been on Bitcoin Twitter for years. 
uh, they've built reputations for themselves, not just for creating art, but being activists. You know, they are creating the means that are spreading the word of Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, that's what the collectors in this space, they really respect that. Uh, so there's not, you know, a lot of our, our bidders, like they, they, uh, they have a bidder name that's associated with their auction bid. Maybe it's anonymous, maybe it's pseudonymous. A lot of times it matches with their Twitter name. Uh, they don't want to be known as the guy who's just flipping their favorite artist's artwork. Uh, now it's a little bit different in the digital space, specifically with the rare pet bays. And uh, part of that is uh, there's, there's a few different parts. So first of all, the artists aren't known for a lot of the rare pet bays. That just wasn't a part of, that wasn't a part of the ecosystem when it first started. Uh, you know, there was you know, no, no uh, input for artists. A lot of the artists became active members in the community and they kind of became known and there's kind of these unstandard directories uh, that associate the rare pepes with different artists. Um, but you don't have generally a strong of a relationship uh, with the artists when you're buying a piece. There is exceptions. Like there's like the Mr. Hansel out there, which is like one of the most prolific rare Pepe artists, one of the most talented, and he's a very active member of the community. And I think many of uh, his buyers have a very strong relationship with him. So there is that. Now, of course, with any digital good, it's much easier to trade these things because of their digital nature. You don't, you know, you're just inputting, it's, it's like sending Bitcoin, right? It's that easy. Uh, so because of that, it's gonna be much easier to flip these things and, and people do, you know, they, they, speculation is a big part of it. Uh, so, you know, speculation, I don't know, of course it has a dirty connotation, but at the end of the day, it's fun. Like, you know, people wanna have fun. Collecting is fun. Buying and selling collectibles is fun. Um, now, you know, do your own research, make sure you're, you're not doing anything too risky outside of your means. But um, if you treat it like a hobby and the amount of money you're putting involved is uh, in line with what a hobby should be, then uh, I don't think there's necessarily anything bad with that uh, speculative aspect of it. And it, there's also, it creates this, there's this community that, that comes around it. Uh, when people get into rare pepes, like, they're not doing it in a silo, like they're in the rare Pepe chats, they're talking about their Pepe's and they're making friends with other people in this community. Uh, so there's a lot of good that comes out of it as well. And when it comes to this uh, rare Pepe community and the kind of, I guess, growth you've seen since that uh, rare Pepe bear market you mentioned the last a few years, how, what were some of those catalysts along the way? Like what, what got rare Pepe's from like this being this like forgotten thing that's overshadowed by other chains and other other crypto projects to having this like cultural moment again and, and getting back to like to 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 being valued as like one of the original digital assets yeah it's uh, i think there's a lot of factors and again i wasn't there from the beginning so i can only speak to as, as like a secondary source but um you know <laughs> The elephant in the room is, uh, you know, the, the rare Pepe's, the Pepe's in general were at one time and, and to some, for some people still associated with, uh, you know, the alt-right kind of taking the meme over. Uh, and I think that happened like kind of coincidentally right as the rare Pepe project was started. And it's really important to emphasize that the rare Pepe project has no association with that. Like you look at all the cars and some of them are edgy, you know, they're, they're funny, like they're witty and, you know, they're not always politically correct, but they're certainly, you know, not associated with hate by any means. Uh, and a lot of them are very much associated with love uh, and, you know, just kind of art. Uh, but because the meme was also taken in that direction around the same time, uh, there was, you know, that connotation with it. And I think it, it took a long time for people to get over that. Uh, at the end of the day, it, Pepe is just a frog. Like, it's just a meme. And it's actually really interesting to study it. There's a, a documentary, um, I think it's Feels Good, man. I think it's on Amazon Netflix. That talks about the whole evolution of the Pepe meme from when Matt Fury started it. And actually, there's like a prehistory. If you really want to dive deep, like Pepe the Frog's been around for a really long time. Uh, but there's something about this meme where people just want to keep it going and they want to create their own versions of it. Uh, but just because one group, you know, creates their own versions of it, that doesn't mean that's what the meme is now. That's just their interpretation. Uh, and anybody can use this meme for however they want. Uh, 
So it's, it's super interesting kind of a case study just for the evolution of digital memes. Rare Pepe's is one of the original digital memes. It started on face, um, um, MySpace uh, before it was co-opted by the alt-right on 4chan. And I think even on 4chan, like there was a lot of people who were not associated with with uh, alt-right that just, you know, were posting Pepe's for the lulz. Um, so, you know, anyway, it, it took a long time for people to get over that. I think most people have gotten over that. Like time just has solved that. Uh, beyond that challenge, look, uh, you know, a lot of the people who were interested in doing more with cryptocurrency beyond transacting coins, they moved on to Ethereum. Uh, Ethereum, you know, attracted a lot of the people who wanted to create things. and. Uh, Ethereum was more custom tailored to uh, the issuance of, of tokens. At the same time, uh, a lot of people in the core Bitcoin community were upset about um, counterparty tokens bloating the chain, even though as it turns out now, like counterparty tokens are, are kind of, they're like, they're kind of keeping the chain alive and that they're one of the few um, ways that fees are being generated to miners now that block space is kind of mysteriously empty. Um, so, you know, a lot of that creativity went, ended up going over to Ethereum and it was only like the hardcore believers, uh, that stayed with the counterparty and rare Pepe community. Uh, and, you know, from there, look, NFTs obviously have had their moments on Ethereum predominantly, but you've had this group of quote unquote archeologists that are saying, okay, like this is a thing, this is gonna be a very much a big thing in the future, where did it start? And they've just, you know, started tracing it back. And of course it goes back to rare Pepe's and even before that to spells of Genesis and, and other tokens. Uh, so I think that started to get some attention around it. And now what's been super interesting is, um, you know, fees on Ethereum have become so high and the chains become so difficult to use, whereas it's super cheap to transact on Bitcoin. Uh, so because of that, you've had this new breed of creators that are now opting to create new tokens on Bitcoin rather than Ethereum or the other chains. Now, I, I didn't know much about the, the history of Pepe's. Uh, so the, the whole like meme culture, I, I wasn't around for that like initial uh, starting point. Um, the internet has seemingly exploded with memes in the last few years. Um, is, there, is there a market, do you think, for other memes and other kind of communities built around memes to monetize those as tokens? Is that something that can be replicated? I know it's not that perfect, authentic, um, organic starting point that the Pepe's had, but is that, do you, do you view that as like a potential avenue for memes to kind of become monetized? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, at the end of the day, everyone has their own definitions of things, but to me, like all art is a meme, like art is a meme. Right. Art, art is means it's, uh, you know, it's, it's telling stories through, you know, through simple visuals. Um, so I think, you know, we've already seen that, but, you know, of what we think of as far as like traditional Bitcoin memes, for example, and look, Bitcoin has the best memes. Uh, I think there's absolutely an opportunity for these things to be tokenized. Now, you know, does it take away from some of the authenticity perhaps? You know, it, there will be a money element to them. Um, but at the same time, it also uh, incentivizes meme creators to make better memes, which is ultimately a good thing. Like, who doesn't, who doesn't want better memes, right? Like, everybody <laughs> benefits. And also, it's like the meme creators, they benefit. Like, they're getting compensated for their work. So, yeah, there's a, there's a give and take. But I think it's more kind of good than bad. Uh, generally, I think it's a great opportunity. And hopefully, as the token ecosystem on Bitcoin develops, uh, that'll become a more real opportunity. And do you guys plan on then listing other collections as some of these other memes or, or other digital art forms kind of pop up? Do you plan, because right now you got like a, a dedicated rare Pepe or, or a Pepe selection on, on Scarce City. Um, is that something you foresee to have like dozens or, or many of these different collections available over time? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, so, so far we support the Rare Pepe's, the original project. We also support the Fake Rares, which is the reboot. We're using these two projects as um, as kind of our testing grounds for um, 
for optimizing the marketplace. Like there's still so much work we can do to make this a better marketplace. And it's easier to do that when you're focused on a specific project. But once we feel like we're in a good place with that, we certainly want to expand it to other collections, uh, whether it's, you know, other kind of older vintage collections or the newer communities that are popping up. Uh, yeah, we want to be a marketplace for, for essentially all of these Bitcoin native token communities. Interesting. So what's up next on the scarcity roadmap? Or like, what are you most excited about in the next six, 12 months? Um, would love to hear more on that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what we talked about is what I'm really excited about. I'm, I'm excited to see how the digital space evolves. But beyond that, look, I mean, uh, Bitcoin has this special quality where people just want to devote their resources to it, whether it's their financial resources and invest in or, or create things around Bitcoin, uh, you know, whether it's content creators like yourselves or, you know, developers want to build on Bitcoin, but there's so many creative people who want to devote their creativity to Bitcoin. And this is where the Bitcoin art uh, idea started. Uh, so we want to support that more and more. Now, as we've started out kind of very grassroots and very small team, uh, we've had to do a lot of manual processing, which has limited how many artworks we can support. So what we really want to do is um, scale up a lot of our sale formats so that any creator can plug into them. And they we can be the home for them to sell their artwork and get the best value for their artwork, whether it's through an auction or a fixed sale, whether it's for a physical good or a digital good. We want to be the home of Bitcoin, of Bitcoin culture for Bitcoin creatives. Um, so, you know, we'll see that in all different directions, but I think what's most important is that we can be an open marketplace where anybody can list something uh, that's, you know, physical artwork or digital. Right. Any, uh, we can kind of close off with this one. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the rest of the Lightning ecosystem and what are some of the applications either you've used or you're most excited about um, or that you've seen, you know, scarce city users talk about anything come to mind specifically? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I wish I had more time to, to, to spend just kind of diving into the ecosystem. But like, I, I, I know there's so much potential here, whether it's just for micropayments you know, I listened to a podcast you did, I think it was your last one with um, Smiles, correct me if I got that wrong, yeah. uh, incentivizing people uh, for their behavior uh, through micropayments. I think there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, I would love to see, you know, this like media 2.0 thing pop up on Bitcoin, the podcasting 2.0. Uh, I haven't really seen that, like, it makes sense for creators right now. I haven't seen it really make sense for listeners. Uh, but I think there's real potential there. Uh, so all of this, man, there's so much potential. Again, I think we're just scratching the surface. I, I really encourage any type of um, technology developers, app developers to consider building on Bitcoin because, and I'll tell you just from our personal story, before Scarce City, I have a whole history of like failed startups. Uh, and one of the challenges from like creating something from scratch is is getting people to support you from the beginning when you have zero credibility. And when you're building on Bitcoin and you're building for the Bitcoin community, you already have that community. Like everybody wants you to win. And that is such a huge tailwind that I just can't overemphasize. Like that's, that's the only way we were able to get past our, you know, start from scratch moment is the Bitcoin artist creator, like they wanted us to, to create something special. So they got behind us when we were nobody. The Lightning community, like Elizabeth Stark, like met me for, for coffee when like I was literally nobody. Um, and you just won't find that anywhere else. Like this is a real, gosh, I can't even, I can't think of the right words, but it's like a real like a community where everybody is just, is, is, and like wants everybody else in the community to win. It's, it's a real kind of some of the parts movement. So as a creator, like you just, you can't find that kind of, um, that kind of benefit, like of creating something new. It's so hard to create something uh, that hasn't been done before. 
Uh, and if you're doing it on Bitcoin, you have a huge, huge advantage from the start. 100% agree. And I think even even more so than just on, on Bitcoin, I, I agree, like Bitcoin obviously has the, the largest base of users, of holders, of, of people engaged in this community. Um, but then specifically on Lightning, uh, one thing that I find interesting is that Lightning is a network of people. It matters how many people are in the community, right? Because that's because if you're making payments, if you're putting up collateral, if you're doing all these things, making a micropayment, uh, supporting a podcast, whatever it is, it depends on people. It's yeah. it's not like some of the some of the DeFi projects that kind of spin up and you know are, are live in a week and some whale deposits a hundred million dollars into and it's like oh look we got a hundred million bucks. You got one person, you know, or it's, you got a few. Like it's, it's not a network of people, right? Um, so I think that that ties in perfectly with your, your point of like, you have this base of actual supporters yeah, and the people are there to support all the projects. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a user base that's ready for you too. Like anybody who's already using lightning, if you're creating a lightning app, like they're ready to use your product. I mean, people who are like, people are looking for ways to use lightning. They will yeah. seek you out if you're doing something and you want lightning. hundred percent. And now you got, you know, you got node services, you got like, like Umbral's got uh, fifteen thousand plus people operating using their operating system um, with nodes that are that are ready to plug into applications, and so now any application that comes along and says, "Hey, we need to grow our users. We need to get get new people on board." Well, you go to you go to someone like Umbral, or you go to some of the other services, and, and all of a sudden there's like an addressable market of people already there. Like we talked, I talked with uh, Romain uh, Rufael at, at LN Markets. Oh yeah previous episode, um, he he mentioned that when they opened on Umbral, or the, when they integrated their app on Umbral, like within that first month, they got like 2000 plus new users. And I just see that, I just see that like continuing over time where anytime now a lightning app is gonna be integrated into one of these big services, there's a growing number of people already there, already using other apps and it just gets better and better, right? Like the apps just, the app store grows, there's more complexity, there's more interesting things to do on Lightning. Um, they all feed off each other. People can earn, people can spend, people can you know collect. It's, it's all sorts of interesting use cases are emerging, but I think it all comes back to the people. I think you're right there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the network effects, they, they expand in different ways, whether it's you know the technology infrastructure, the installed base of users, the liquidity, the community, uh, you know, it's just, it's just so much easier to win when you're, when you're creating for the Bitcoin community. Yeah. And you know that whatever you're building is built on a solid foundation. Exactly. That's another important thing. It's like, that's, and that's you know, it's not changing. Right. You know, it's there. Uh, right. You can always count on it. That's the trustless nature of Bitcoin. And that's, you know, that's, it's more dependable than any other network we have. Um, so having that, like, it just, it, it encourages people to devote more of their time and resources to it because they know it's going to be there for the long term. Totally. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. This is, this is a lot of interesting insight and a, and a whole new perspective on lightning that, you know, I just didn't understand that art rule before. Like I, I, I've not emerged in it and, uh, hearing your perspective on it is really, really awesome. So thank you for taking the time. Um, where can people find more about you and Scarce City? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we're all over Twitter, scarce dot, that's D-O-T, city. Uh, we have a Telegram channel, uh, scarce underscore city. Uh, it's our banter channel, you know, that's where we, we throw out our, our memes and you get all of our auction notifications there. Uh, me personally, I'm at Siege Mount. I don't post that much, but, um, you know, DMs are always open if you ever want to hit me up, if you're doing something that's related to what we're doing, or maybe if you just think what we're doing is cool, please reach out. Um, always happy to chat. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time and uh, hope we can do this again sometime soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kevin. This has been great. Welcome to the lightning round. This is your opportunity to send in any questions, any comments. You can send in some stats and support the show if you'd like. This is a lightning podcast. If you don't already have one, go out and download a lightning podcasting app. Fountain is my favorite one to use, but there are many of them and you can send in questions and comments and you can support the show. In the last couple of days, I got in a few screams. BTC Rich sent in some sats. Uh, Mary Oscar sent in some sats and left a comment. Um, 
he said, great episode. This is in response to episode number 11 um, with Daniel Berezovsky of Smiles. Uh, Oscar says, feedback for the lightning round. It should be at the start of each episode, not at the end. And you should say who the next guest will be at the end of the previous episode so people can ask questions for that guest. Love the feedback. I'm 100% on board with the second part. But listeners, I want to hear what you have to say about the first part. Do you think the lightning round should move to the beginning of the show? Should it stay at the end? Um, 100% agree that I should be telling you all who the next guest is going to be so you can ask questions. Just as a heads up, the next guest for this show will be Graham Krizik of Voltage. He's the CEO there. So if you have questions for Graham, send them in uh, and we will answer them on the show. Um, but I'd love to hear what you think. Should this move to the beginning? Should I move this segment to the beginning of the episode? Should I leave it where it is? Thank you, Oscar, for the comment. And uh, can't wait to see what you guys all send in this week. 